Let us pray. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. For you are my Father. Amen. Amen. Welcome back. Thank you for being here. When I first started doing parish missions about three years ago, one of my friends said the real test of whether the mission is going well is if anybody comes back the second night. So thank you for coming back. Um, I like to put the Blessed Sacrament out when I do my missions. As I said last night, it reminds me that the Lord uses me as a vessel. It reminds you that Jesus is way more important than I am. And so I like you to keep focused on the Lord and pray for me and pray for our year parish as we share this time together. I know it's difficult to spend four nights of the week or three nights of the week in church like that little boy I mentioned last night. I don't go to church on Wednesday nights. It's kind of a mystery that you're here. The origins of missions are kind of interesting. They really grew out of the evangelical Baptist uh, experience of religion and it's supposed to be a real time of intense spirituality where people come together to really grow in the Lord and to renew their sense of the Lord and his work in their life. Our Catholic experience of parish missions is a little bit like many of our Catholic experiences. We have watered them down a little bit because typical parish missions in, in maybe an evangelical or a Baptist church would last all day long, all week long. So you're only given an hour for three nights. That's pretty typical Catholic. Um, if you were Protestant, you'd be here from seven in the morning until eight at night all week long. So I guess we can be grateful we're Catholics, right? It's not quite as difficult. Um, so last night, I spoke a lot about grace. And I encountered a friend of all of yours, a member of your parish today in Ace Hardware. I ran into him and he shared something with me that I thought was really helpful. It was very interesting insight. He said, it made me think about why I need grace and why I'm going looking for it. And there's so many different ways to search for God's grace. Remember what grace is, as I said last night, the divine influence on the heart. Whenever we encounter grace, somehow God begins to change us and to work his incredible miracles in our life again. The prayer I pray every night before my mission is called the Prayer of Abandonment. That prayer is written by Blessed Charles Foucault, who is one of my favorite saints. Well, he's not a saint yet, but I'm sure he will be. Um, he lives in Algeria, or lived in Algeria at the turn of the century. He was a young man from France, very much like many of the saints. He had lived a very wealthy life. He decided to abandon all of the wealth and all of the comforts of his life in France. And he went to work with the Muslims in the Sahara Desert. He went down to a place called Tamariset in southern Algeria in the De Sahara Desert. And he started a religious community called Little Brothers of Jesus. His order, the community that he started, was so strict that nobody joined it. 
nobody could do what he asked them to do. He really literally had them sleep on a bed of nails. He w had them wear horsehair jackets in the middle of the summer so that they would feel the, the self-inflicted pain and suffering that so often is part of um, some Christian spiritualities. So he went back to France. He had to report to his bishop. And after he went back, I don't know, I think it was like 10 years, he went back to his bishop, and his bishop said, why are you there? You're not getting anything accomplished. Nobody's joining your community. Why do you want to live in France and work with the Muslims? And Brother Foucault said, he said, you know, Bishop, I want to work in, Fran in the Sahara because I celebrate Mass there every day. And he said, and I try to love the people that I'm living with in that town. And he said, my hope is that by the end of my life, they will ask one question about me. Who is it I follow? And I thought, what a profound way to live your life. Have you ever thought about that? When you die, will they ask that question? Who is it you follow? Why did you come to St. John's on a Tuesday night? or a Wednesday night? Why do you come every week? Why do you do the work and the ministry you're engaged in? Why do you love the way you love? Why do you treat people the way you treat people? Who is it that motivates you and compels you to live the life that you're living? I think if we begin to ask that question and live our life with that intention, it changes everything in our life. The reason I like to talk about grace is because I think when we begin to search for grace, we can live our life that way. Who is it we follow? Why is it we're lying on the lawn on a starry night and marveling at the beauty of the stars? Because we follow Jesus, and Jesus is a mystery. So great, it's beyond human comprehension. And Jesus' life is strange. It was a failure. Did you ever stop to think about that? Jesus was not a brilliant success. If he had been a brilliant success, the people of Israel, the Jewish people that he grew up among, would not have crucified him. They would have put him on a throne and literally made him their king. His life was a failure because the people of Israel, the Jewish people, were looking for something other than Jesus. They were looking to follow a guy on a white stallion that would ride in with an army and conquer the Romans. They weren't looking for someone that would ride in on a donkey, dressed in rags, in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And that paradox was so painfully difficult for them that they stopped following him. And I think that happens in our lives as well. I think sometimes our expectation of the one we follow is so disappointed that we stop following him. And so I want to present to you tonight another type of grace. It's not a grace that's enumerated specifically in the catechism. It's not one of the three graces I talked about last night. Remember sanctifying grace, actual grace, and sacramental grace. But I believe that this grace is real, and it's something we all experience, and believe it or not, we hate it. We don't want this grace. And I call it painful grace. I call it the grace that comes from intense 
and miserable suffering. And suffering is not a word that we should ever use lightly. Suffering doesn't mean giving up meat on Friday or doing some of the little disciplines that we engage in to grow in our spiritual life. Suffering is awful. It's awful. Nobody should ever go looking for suffering, and I suspect none of us really do go looking for suffering. Anybody that wears a horsehair coat and lies on a bed of nails is seeking out a kind of discipline that allows suffering in their life, but suffering in and of itself has no value whatsoever unless we follow Jesus. And that is how we begin to experience the grace of suffering, painful grace, if you will. Suffering happens in our lives when we least expect it, and I suspect when God needs us to begin to follow him anew. I think God allows tremendous suffering in our life so that we, like I said last night, get knocked off our horses at times, so we wake up, and so we begin to look for grace again. Because in the midst of great suffering, when we feel lost and we feel we can't endure one more moment, we fall on our knees like Moses and Abraham and we begin to search the heavens for God. And when we begin to search the heavens for God, we begin to experience his grace, the divine influence on the human heart, as I said last night. You know, I... Um, I thought about suffering, like I told you last night, I talked about suffering as a priest for 30 years. I talked about suffering to people who were suffering. I was a little flippant about suffering. I was kind of nonchalant and casual. I anointed many, many people. I wept with people who were grieving. I attended them at their deathbed. And I always thought suffering was a rather terrible experience. And I think in the dark of night when nobody was listening, I said, thank God I haven't suffered. And then I was diagnosed with cancer. And in that experience of listening to my doctor tell me, you know, we found something in that CAT scan more than diverticulitis. He said, you have a very large tumor on your pancreas. And you have a tumor on your left kidney. My father had just had cancer two years before that diagnosis. And so in my mind, immediately I thought, dad survived kidney cancer. I can survive that. But in my research about his kidney cancer, I also discovered this nightmare of pancreatic cancer. And when I heard my doctor tell me that, and my doctor saw, he began to weep, I was terrified. And then, for the first time in my entire life, I knew what suffering felt like. And it didn't hurt physically, at least not then. It hurt emotionally and psychologically. And what really bothered me is that God seemed so silent in that suffering. I asked myself as a priest, driving back and to tell my mom and dad that I had been diagnosed with pretty severe cancer, what am I going to say? And then I found myself just overwhelmed with doubt, wondering if God was present in suffering. And actually, I didn't think he was. I went and saw um, a woman who was one of my spiritual mentors. Her name is Mother Maria Michael. She's the abbess at um, Walburga Abbey in northern Colorado. I had been going there for five years, and I was the confessor for the sisters. And I didn't know where else to turn. And so a couple days after my diagnosis, I drove up to the abbey. 
And when I sat down with uh, Mother Maria Michael, I said to her, I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, well, I can tell you two things. God has prepared you for this moment. You've been coming to the Abbey for five years, and I always knew your desire to come to the Abbey was an indication that God was drawing you closer to himself because something was going to happen in your life. And she said, now what you need to do is abandon yourself to divine providence. Abandon yourself to God, because now God's in charge. So I went out for a little hike that afternoon, mad, mad at Mother Maria Michael because she didn't take away my cancer and give me an easy answer, and mad that I had to suffer, and mad that I was at the top of my game, pastor of my huge parish, young man, I was only 49 years old, and I was too young to have this. So I sat on this rock, and I began to think about my whole life and put it in perspective. You know, they say you take a journey down memory lane right before you die. Well, that's kind of true because you analyze your whole life. You look at everything. And what I came to, the conclusion I came to is, oh my gosh, I've been duped. How stupid of me to become a priest, to be celibate all these years, not to have a wife and children to support me and love me, to be all alone as a priest and then have God completely bail out on me. And as I sat there, I thought, it's all a big joke. It's a really nice story that the church has perpetuated for 2,000 years sort of to keep us giving money in the collection. And I literally became an atheist. And I decided in that moment, there is no God, because if there was a God, this would never have happened to me. And I sat there, and I was an atheist, for literally 10 minutes. And then I started to think about it a little bit differently. I thought, hmm, now what am I going to do? I'm an atheist. There is no Jesus. There is no Eucharist. There is no anointing. There is no grace. And so I started thinking about that. And I thought, well, you know what? The story works pretty well because I really want some grace. I really want the Eucharist. I really want to be anointed. I really want to have a Catholic funeral. I really want to go to heaven. And it all started working for me, and I thought, which one's making me feel better in my cancer, my atheism or my faith? And so I stopped being an atheist. I decided to believe it all and give parish missions to try to convince you it's true, too. <laughs> and you know what? I believe that's what painful grace does for all of us in our life. I think we all have to have moments where we're honest with God, where we don't play this silly game that I think so often religious people play, pretending to be holy, faking it. And guess what the gift of suffering is? You can't fake it anymore. Then you have to look in the mirror and say, this is awful. I never bargained for this. I didn't want that person to die. I didn't want to be diagnosed with cancer. I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want to go through a divorce. I didn't want my teenagers to scream at me. I didn't ask for any of that. And then, at that moment, you have to step back and look at your life and say, which one's going to work for me now? Becoming an atheist and saying there is no God and stepping away from his grace or stepping back into faith whether you believe it or not, and trusting that there is grace. That's the beauty of suffering. 
Now, in our lives, I suspect some of you haven't really ever suffered. And usually that's before 18, the year 18 years old. And I don't know if there's anybody that young in here. That's one of the reasons our young people suffer from narcissism. Because they have not suffered much. Some of them have. They haven't suffered a lot, though. In America, where there is food on their table and they have a warm bed and daddy has a car keys and they get a good allowance and they can go out for dinner and they can do the things they want, they live in this unreal world free of suffering. And I think what happens in that world is that they convince themselves they don't need grace. And they convince themselves, or we convince ourselves, because life is easy enough that we don't think we do. So there is such a blessing in suffering. And if it's not your suffering that you personally are going to encounter, sometimes that painful grace comes when you stand with someone else who is suffering. And sometimes being with a person who is suffering is more grace-filled for you than even for them. And sometimes the suffering in our own life has more meaning for the people around us than for us. I want to use my parents as an example. I told them not to come tonight because um, we came up to Karen's house together and I said, you can't go to the mission talk tonight because it's going to be about you and you'll be embarrassed. And my dad would have hated it anyway. He would have died because I'm going to talk about him for a minute. My dad was typical of the men his age. My dad's 86 years old. And he is a typical man who's 86. He had to work hard to provide for his family, and he did it really well. But my dad was a man's man. He did not feed the babies. I don't know if he ever changed their diapers. My dad was a kind man and a good father, but he wasn't the nurturing, tender, loving dad that rocked us on his lap to put us to sleep at night. My mom did that. My mom made our meals, my mom kept the house, my mom changed the babies. My mom did what women do and my dad did what men did in 1958. And I lived with my dad that way and I watched my dad always believing my dad was a fine man, but always a little bit wondering about him. Did my dad really have a tender heart? Was my dad really a kind man? Or was he just a hardworking man that had an image to present to the world of being kind of macho? And then my mother, God bless her, at about 84 years old, began to suffer from what's called a familiar tremor. And my mother has a very severe tremor. You might have seen her last night sitting here in church. Her head shakes constantly. Her hands shake to the point where she cannot feed herself. She can't pick up a glass of water. She can't pick up a piece of silverware. She can't take her glasses off. Her hands shake so bad. And guess who has to do it all for my dad? I mean my mom, my dad. And I have watched this transformation in the last five years, which is nothing short of a miracle. Because here this man is, who never fed a baby, who never sat at our high chair, who never had the patience to do it, and he does it. He does it for my mom. And I tell my mom all the time she hates her tremor. It's the worst nightmare she could have imagined. She hates it for one reason, because she liked to do it for everybody else, but never wanted anybody to have to do it for her. And now she has to have this man feed her. He has to feed her every single bite she eats. He has to hold the cup for her. 
He has to take her glasses off for her. He has to do every single thing a person can't do when they can't use their hands. And it has been transformative in my dad's life. That grace, I don't know, I hope God's grace is working in my mother. I think he's working in my mother giving her patience, but he's really transforming my father. That painful grace has been a rich blessing for my father more than my mother. And sometimes when we're standing next to someone who's suffering, they're transforming our lives because God is having an influence on our heart through their suffering. And I believe that's why all of us ought to be people who are searching for grace. Because when it begins to happen in our life, it's so important that we call it what it is, as I said last night. That we recognize that this isn't just a necessity in our life. That this is the way God is transforming our life. That God is taking every single thing that is happening in our daily life, in our experience, and he's making us new again. He's changing our very nature with his grace. And suffering has a way of doing that unlike any other thing in the world. As I said last night, you know, you can have moments of actual grace when you go out and lay on the lawn and look up at the stars and marvel at their abundance. But getting up off the lawn might be the real grace. Like I said last night, my mom said if she got down on the lawn and to look at the stars, she could never get back up. And I suspect that would happen to a lot of us. And maybe that's the grace. Maybe when we discipline ourselves or we enter into more struggle, sometimes out of necessity, that's when God can do his best work. Now, like I said, you don't go looking for suffering, but sometimes what we need to do is step away from the abundance of our life so that we can find grace. And when we step away from our comfort zone, it's not easy. Now, what I suspect happens, and I wonder about this sometimes with my missions, is we listen to a good talk or we listen to an inspiring speech or we listen to one of Father Pete's really challenging homilies and we think, that was great, I love that. And we go home and we do exactly what we did the day before we heard that talk. We don't change a darn thing. And do you know why we do that? Because we're not sure we really want to step away from our comfort zone. And when we step away from our comfort zone, what we're inviting in our lives is suffering. When our routine changes or our, our patterns change, we have to kind of move the furniture a little bit. And we're going to run into it then because it's not where it used to be. But that is what's so necessary in our lives to begin to experience real grace. It really is important. And I think so many times we become a little complacent. And sometimes we believe that God's grace is going to permeate even the most boring routines in life. And it doesn't happen sometimes. Now, inevitably, like I said, life brings suffering. Because guess what? Whether we like it or not, by the grace of God, we're all growing older. Did you know that? I don't think there's a person in this room that's actually getting younger as we sit here. And young people believe profoundly that that's not true, that they'll be young forever. That's why we live the way we do when we're young. 
But as you get to be older, you begin to feel it, the effects of aging. Your back doesn't work quite as well. You don't have the energy. You want to take a nap. You're not motivated. And guess what? Life brings suffering. And I think the suffering of old age is the most profound and difficult suffering any human being has to ever experience. Letting go of everything. And if we don't practice while we're young, then old age is even way harder. I love what my mom says. When she first started getting her tremor, she was unable to write any longer. And she said, oh, I can't write even a note to my kids. And my mom used to leave notes all the time. She said, I can't even do that anymore. She goes, it's a little death for me. And now she says, I have many little deaths. And all of those little deaths are teaching me to let go. And that's grace. That's grace. That's when grace begins to have the most profound effect that we could imagine in those little deaths that teach us how to die. So there is suffering in our life, whether we like it or not, it's going to happen. And therefore, I think we need to be people that search for grace. I'm glad you came to the mission tonight. Now, I've given you some examples of how to begin to recognize grace in your life, the sanctifying grace of people around you, the um, sacramental grace that you receive every time you receive a sacrament, those moments of actual grace that you sometimes search for and sometimes don't. But when you begin to have these experiences, I think you need something to help you recognize that grace. Or else what will happen is it will take place and you won't even know it happened. And again, I'm going to go back to painful grace. When you begin to suffer, maybe you are diagnosed with terminal illness or lose someone very important to you, then what happens is you begin to search for tools to cope with it. And in those tools that help you cope with suffering are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I think the gifts of the Holy Spirit are essential for all of us so that we can recognize grace, so we never miss a moment of it, and so that we can understand how it is changing us, and we can see the effect of that grace in our life. Those gifts of the Holy Spirit open the door for us to the heart of God. Jesus gave us the advocate, the Holy Spirit, that we're going to celebrate in Pentecost so that we would know that we are swimming in grace. We would know what to call it. We would see in those experiences his work in his hands and how he is a part of our life. The gifts of the Holy Spirit help us cope with everyday experiences at times or with really difficult experiences at times so that we don't become atheists for more than 10 minutes, so that we can hang on to faith. And we can, like St. Augustine said, begin to experience the rewards of faith, which is seeing what we have believed in. So we need those gifts. I think sometimes we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit way too early in teenagers' lives. They listen to them. They kind of remember them for a while. We don't teach them very well, and then they forget about them in a minute. And you know who I think needs the gifts of the Holy Spirit more than teenagers? I have to say that differently. You know who I think will understand the gifts of the Holy Spirit more than teenagers is those of you who are beginning to grow older 
and who are beginning to let go and abandon yourself to divine providence. Because it's not easy. And because when life is not easy, we go searching for ways to cope. And teenagers don't need those very well. Now, if we could teach the gifts of the Holy Spirit to teenagers, they could use them. <laughs> Thank God they're there, whether they know it or not, because I think kids that survive being teenagers are relying on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and they don't even know it. But sometimes we use language and it doesn't mean anything to us until we need it. So we're going to try it. I'm going to tell you what they are again. How many of you think you remember the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit? Some of you do. That's good. You're all going through your head going, hmm, let's see, I think it's like this and this. One of the things that gets me really frustrated as a priest is that we present the gifts of the Holy Spirit all over the board. Now, some teachers have tried to do it with a, an acronym, you know, giving you the first letter of each gift so you can kind of remember what they are. That kind of works. But I want to give them to you in a way that I think is logical. Can you imagine that? Something in our faith that's logical? I'm going to give them to you in a way that I really want you to think about them in an order that I think is necessary. So I'm going to give them to you in an order that is logical. Now, it's my order. It's not the way the scripture even gives them to you. It's not even the way God gives them to you. But, you know, God doesn't do everything perfect, does he? So um, <laughs> I think if we could think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the logical progression of how we need them, it'd be easier to remember them. Now, I'm going to give them to you in this logical progression, but I want you to do me a favor. Don't wedge yourself to it to the point where you think that once you've got one, then it's time for you to ask for the second one. You can ask for any of them whenever you happen to need them. But if you think about it, in our life as human beings, as we grow up, as we encounter suffering, as we begin to struggle with life, we begin to need these gifts in a logical progression. Okay, so here we go. When I was first diagnosed with cancer, as any of you have experienced, or whenever you really have experienced tremendous pain in your life, the first thing that we do in the modern age is we sit down and Google pancreatic cancer. What does it do to us? How long am I have to live? How am I going to cope? What's the best medicine? What do we do when life throws us a real curveball and is suddenly difficult? We go out and do our research, don't we? I think that's logical, and I think every human being goes and seeks knowledge. Because when life really begins to be difficult, and when we encounter things that we're not familiar with or we don't know how to cope with, we know that knowledge is power. And so the very first gift of the Holy Spirit is knowledge. And if we begin to ask for that gift in moments of deep crisis or when we really have deep questions, the promise of the Holy Spirit is, I will give it to you. You will have knowledge. Knowledge is many different things. Sometimes knowledge is real black and white. It's, it's Google knowledge. It's factual knowledge. You go and you research it on Google. But sometimes knowledge comes from living, Sometimes knowledge comes from asking other people. Sometimes knowledge comes from listening. We gain knowledge in many ways. As a child, we begin to ask questions so that we can learn to walk and talk and survive in this world.
It's essential for a child to have knowledge. And parents know that if their child's going to survive, the first thing that they really have to start doing for their child is teaching them not to touch a hot stove. Knowledge is essential for any of us. And knowledge is the doorway to grace. So coming to a mission is a good thing because you're gaining knowledge, I hope. Reading the scripture is important because you gain knowledge. Reading the catechism is important to gain knowledge. And as you gain knowledge, again, you begin to have power. Power over your own mind and over your own thinking. Um, Hans von Balthasar is a great theologian, and he, um, he wrote a book called Anxiety, a small book, that I read after I was diagnosed with cancer. And one of the things he said in that book, as I was seeking knowledge, was the concern and anxiety we experience about things like cancer is always far worse than the things we are worried about. Did you know that? Did you know that your concern about your children is far more difficult and painful than what your children are actually going to do? The worry we have about life, the anxiety we feel about life, is far worse than anything that can happen in life. It's what we worry about. And the way to find grace in the midst of our anxiety is to begin to seek knowledge. Real, concrete knowledge. I a lot of times ask parents especially, why are you so worried about your kids staying out till midnight? What's going to happen? And then they begin to think of all the things that possibly could happen. And then I say, well, have you ever asked them what actually they're doing in a way that they feel safe that they can tell you? Have you sought knowledge? Or have you just let your imagination go and run wild and go crazy? Now, the problem with knowledge in today's world is we're never real sure where to get it. Because like Pope Benedict said, we live in a time where there's a dictatorship of relativism, which means that whatever truth people happen to present is presented as if it is a fact, and it's true. You know, we hear it called fake news nowadays. It's getting really disturbing, isn't it? You never know what's true. You never know who to believe. You never know what to do. But if we pray for the gift of knowledge, I believe the Holy Spirit helps us discern the truth and the knowledge that is true. And I think that discernment begins to happen in the human heart. Sometimes you know the things you read are nonsense. But with the gift of the Holy Spirit guiding you, that certainty becomes very real. And I think that really happens. I really believe that. Okay. Knowledge is the very first thing we do when we encounter painful grace, when we are searching for grace. But knowledge without understanding is useless. When I got on the um, internet and I googled pancreatic cancer, I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. I had no idea what the words meant. I didn't know what the diagnosis meant. I didn't understand anything I was learning. And guess what happened? I got more and more frightened of my cancer because I did not have any understanding of it. And very often, we need the gift of understanding. We need the Holy Spirit to open our minds to understand what we have learned. And I really believe that's a wonderful way to pray. 
as you go seeking knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of the church, knowledge of um, your faith, then also take the next step and begin to pray for understanding so that you understand what you've learned, obviously. It's pretty, pretty practical, logical, isn't it? That if you don't understand what you've learned, the knowledge is wasted. It doesn't do any good. All it does is lead you to confusion. So understanding is the second gift of the Holy Spirit, and I really believe it's an important way to pray. Pray that the Lord will lead you to right knowledge, and as you gain it, that you will understand it. But understanding, in my opinion, is not limited to just understanding like book knowledge or Google knowledge or knowledge of whatever somebody has said. Understanding begins to deepen our ability to be with each other. As I said, parents worry about their teenagers staying out until midnight or one o'clock. So the first thing that has to happen is they have to begin to seek some knowledge of what those teenagers are actually doing. And part of what's missing in those dialogues, I think, at times, and it's easy to criticize you parents because I don't have any kids, so it um, gives me the freedom to do it <laughs> without embarrassment. But I think so many times parents don't understand their teenagers. And I certainly know that teenagers don't understand their parents. And I think that that's also what the gift of understanding is. It opens our hearts to a mutual dialogue and understanding with each other. And as I said last night, we cannot see a friend in one another until we're willing to understand each other. As I sat at that table with those homeless people, my prayer was that I would get to know them. And what the gifts of the Holy Spirit allowed me to do first was seek some knowledge about their lives, to learn about Amon's growing up in, in Tehran, in Iran. For those of you who weren't here, he was a, a friend I met in the shelter who weren't here last night. And then to understand I had to really pray that I understood how it felt to walk on the streets of New York unable to speak a word of English and knowing that I was representing Muslims because I was from Iran. How hard is that to understand? That's a really important gift so that we can be friends with each other. So that gift of understanding builds bridges between people. And that also is grace. It opens our lives to the sanctifying grace of strangers and aliens and people who we may not necessarily want to meet, like prostitutes. And those of you who weren't here last night, ask your friends what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't want to tell the story of Hazel all over again. <laughs> okay, once you have learned what you can learn and sought knowledge with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and you've prayed for an open heart and mind and tolerance, and you can understand, then guess what happens? You can be called wise, and you have gained the gift of wisdom. Now, the gift of wisdom very often is presented as one of the first gifts. It ought to be presented as the last gift, because wisdom is the hardest gift to discover. And I really believe this, and I'm not just saying it to be nice to the elderly people here. I don't really believe you gain wisdom until you've lived. And I always tell people that are older than me, a person that is a day older than you is a day wiser than you. They may not have as much knowledge as you. I certainly can't use a computer like my niece Kelsey can. 
but I suspect I'm a little wiser than her. Now, I may not be smarter. Don't mis misunderstand. I have people, when I do this in my missions, they walk out and say, I'm so happy you told my grandkids I'm smarter than they are. I said, I didn't say that. I didn't say you're smarter than them, but I suspect you are wiser than them. And the wisdom that comes, comes from living. It comes from encountering those hardships and moments that only life can teach you about. It comes from letting go. Wisdom comes from being an atheist for five minutes. I could never have done parish missions when I was a newly ordained priest. I had no wisdom. I might have had all kinds of book knowledge. I might have understood the faith, but I didn't have any wisdom about it. My wisdom grew out of that suffering, as all of our wisdom does. And you know, sometimes you watch people who are older, and there is something very profound about the way they encounter the struggles of youth. They smile. Did you ever see that? They smile with a certain wisdom. It's like, yeah, I know you're worried about that boyfriend. And someday you'll be 80 and you won't remember his name. <laughs> and that's wisdom. That's wisdom. And it is understanding. It's understanding. But you know what we do? And, and this is going to be, I'm going to go to my grave with this. I'm going to, this is my cause now. What we do to the elderly is we push them aside. We don't want to be caregivers. We get impatient with their aging. They are not active, and we get disappointed sometimes because they can't do what they used to do. And so what happens is we tend to push them away because they are sort of an obstacle in our busy world. I have a nephew-in-law who just became a doctor of um, physical therapy, and I saw the most wonderful thing in him tonight. He actually went out of his way to sit with my mother, 87 years old, and talk to her about how she feels. How many people do that for the elderly? And you know what the elderly want to talk about? How they feel because everything they feel is a mystery to them and frustrating to them and irritating to them. And what a beautiful gift to see a young man with a newborn baby sit down with an elderly woman and ask her how she feels. I thought, what a grace. What a grace. A grace for her. And I wonder how many times we miss the grace of wisdom. Because our wise ones are not living in our homes, they're living in nursing homes. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting an elderly person in a nursing home. But what's wrong is when you forgot you put him in the nursing home and you never go to see him. You know, I had a dad who had a very elderly mother and he went to see her every single day. And he brought her to our house every single weekend. And he taught me how to cherish the wise ones in our life. Now, I don't know what it is, but I suspect a lot of young people are missing some great wisdom. The stories of the elders. You know where the wise ones used to sit in our churches? Up here. The council of the elders. In the synagogues in our churches. That's where they ought to be. Now, I'm not going to just pick on young people. I'm going to pick on the elderly a little bit too. What in the world are you sitting in the back row for? 
You need to be up here in the front where everyone can see your gray hair and your shaking head and your beautiful faith. Elderly people need to take their rightful place among us as the ones who have been given the gift of wisdom. And it's a gift we all long for, don't we? We all want to be wise. But that wisdom comes from great suffering. And after you begin to have wisdom, guess what happens? You begin to make really good choices in your life. You know, unfortunately, as I said, wisdom so often comes too late. But when you have some wisdom, you begin to have a much easier time making good choices or using right judgment. And that's why so many times people who are a little older than us don't get so shook up about the things we're all worried about. It's why we sometimes go to them for advice. Should I take that job or not? Because we have an instinct that they can help us make good choices. And wisdom teaches us how to make the right choice, which is the fourth gift of the Holy Spirit. And I really believe that without knowledge that you understand and the wisdom of living with that, it's very difficult to make good choices in your life. Unfortunately, we have to make really important choices in our life at a young age. So where do we do? Well, we have to seek wisdom. And we need to ask for advice. And who do we ask? Well, I hope we ask our grandparents or our parents for advice. You know, I heard a wedding one time, and the, the preacher um, got up and he told this young couple, you no longer need to listen to the advice of your parents. And I wanted to go up and smack the guy in the face because I thought, what terrible advice to give a young married couple. Who should they listen to? They should listen to their parents just because they got married and just because they grew up and were able to make that choice doesn't mean they don't need advice. And I'll tell you what, they're going to get plenty of advice from CNN and Fox News and ABC News and every media outlet in the world is going to tell them exactly what they need to be happy and we listen to that advice all the time. And our wise ones are in nursing homes and nobody's visiting them. Is there something wrong with this? No wonder our world is living without grace. No wonder. So where does grace lie? Sometimes in nursing homes. After we have made good choices, we discover something. To make that choice, we need the next gift of the Holy Spirit, which is a backbone, courage, fortitude. Courage and fortitude are interchanged words, by the way. Sometimes we call the gifts the same, different words, but the same meaning. Courage is the fifth gift of the Holy Spirit, and courage gives us the ability to make the choices that our wisdom has helped us understand we should make. It takes great courage sometimes to be a Christian in this world. It takes great courage to love grandma and grandpa. It took my nephew-in-law great courage to take time out of his busy day to sit with grandma. It takes courage to take care of your parents. But that courage comes from the knowledge that you've gained, that you've understood, and the wisdom that you tells you these people are important, and the right choices you have to leave them in your life. And once you've done that, once you've had the courage to make the right choices, guess what happens? You wake up in the morning and you say, ah, oh, I wonder what today is going to bring. 
Making the right choices and having the courage of your convictions makes every day amazing. And that's what the gift of awe and wonder is. It's a fear of the Lord, is the other way we talk about it, but a fear of the Lord, that isn't mean that we tremble in fear before God, but we are stunned by what he can do in our life. And we live our days in awe and wonder. I wonder what today is going to bring. I wonder who today is going to bring into my life. I wonder what grace is waiting for me today. And you know, we all ought to be just a little bit afraid of that. We ought to approach every day with a fear of the Lord that is profound. Because today could be the day that you discover you have terminal cancer. Today could be the day that you experience terrible suffering. But if you have the knowledge and the understanding and the wisdom and you've made good choices in your life because you've had the courage of your convictions, you can live with that fear with awe and wonder. Trusting that God is in charge and abandoning yourself to divine providence. And when we live that way, we fall on our knees in reverence. We recognize that God is in charge. And we can shake off our atheism. Because life is fascinating when we let God be in charge. We have great suffering. We will experience great pain. We will experience the pain of people we love the most. But when we have reverence, we have a conviction that God is in charge of this and that God will bring about his holy grace no matter what life brings us. And living that way, as I said, makes every day a wonderful day no matter what our suffering is. You know, I, as I said, I never thought I'd see the day that my father had to sit and feed my mother. And every time I see it, I'm in awe and wonder, and I have great reverence for God's mysterious plan. It's not my plan. It's not mom's plan. It certainly wasn't my dad's plan. It's none of us kids' plan to see our parents age, but it's God's plan. And it's amazing how it unfolds, doesn't it? You know, I'm still here. I, I was cured of my cancer, um, a miracle in my life. As I had cancer again last year, <laughs> I keep recovering from my cancer. They keep taking little pieces of my kidney out every time it gets cancer on it. One of these days I'll be without kidneys and without a pancreas, but I suspect I'll just keep on going because that's what happens when you acknowledge God and you abandon yourself to divine providence. You just keep on going like the energy, the energizer bunny. You never know what tomorrow is going to bring and you're a little bit in awe of what it could be. So God bless you. I'm going to um, repose the blessed sacrament. We've been sitting in the presence of Jesus tonight. I hope that you know all the gifts of the Holy Spirit now, that you will always seek knowledge, that you will always pray to understand that knowledge, that you will reverence the wisdom of the elderly, that you will make good choices in your life, that you will have the courage of your conviction to live your life fully in faith, that you will be able to wake up tomorrow morning in awe and wonder no matter what the pain is that you're experiencing in your life. Because when you can do all those things, when the Holy Spirit anoints you with those gifts, you will wake up every morning and have tremendous reverence for God.
and God is in charge. God bless you. Would you please kneel?